Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I am Rania Kalik, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. Hello, Kevin. Hey there. And we have with us today a friend of the show who's back for like the third or fourth time. Um, Max Blumenthal, author and journalist, uh, founder of The Gray Zone. Uh, thank you for coming back on, Max. Thanks. And uh, you all have one of the longest running podcasts I know of. So I'm offended that this is only the third or fourth time. I think it's actually probably like the fifth or sixth, but oh. it's been. Friend of the show territory. Seven years. Seven, that's, that's crazy. Before, like, that's before, you know, podcasting was like what blogging was in the 2000s. That's a good mm-hmm. point. Seven years. So, okay, to get into it, you recently got back from a trip to. I know everybody wants to talk about the U.S. elections, or maybe they're exhausted from them, like I am, watching two turtles race to the top at how slow it's been. But you were recently covering a very different election in Bolivia. You were there, I think, like last week you got back. Um, And that was the big story before the U.S. elections was this election in Bolivia after last last year's right-wing U.S.-backed coup that ousted democratically elected President Evo Morales. So you and the Grazer team were on the ground. Um, I think it's going to be pretty refreshing talking about a topic that's different than what's happening in the U.S., but maybe you could start by giving us an idea of how the Bolivian elections were different. You were an observer, so they were different. How are they different from the shit show that we've watched take place in the U.S. this week? Well, I, I mean, I think we need to talk about the U.S. election now, too. And uh, I was also in Miami on my way back. I stopped there for a few days just to see what was going on. And uh, we published a piece by a friend of mine in Miami who's a student at Florida International who really lives in the heart of the beast of the Latin American diaspora, the right-wing diaspora in Miami. And it totally foreshadowed what was going to happen in Miami. And you could just feel it on the ground in Miami that Trump was gonna absolutely clobber Biden in that area. Um, And it relates back to Bolivia, uh, but there are so many other factors. I mean, COVID was a huge factor in the Bolivian election. It was used by the, what we know of as the coup administration of Janine Añez to delay the election twice because they just wanted to keep holding on to power even though they weren't there as a provisional interim government to do anything except call new elections. Um, and here, COVID obviously had a huge impact on the election. I mean, I think it's true that it harmed Trump in some respects. I mean, it basically took the economy into a state of spiraling oblivion with the Fed endlessly printing money and people on the verge of being evicted all over the country. Um, and you know, Trump had previously been boasting about the greatest economy in U.S. history and was planning to run his re-election campaign on the economy. Um, but I think COVID also helped Trump in some ways, in some ways that a lot of people don't understand. I saw an exit poll that showed 48% of voters thought Trump's response or the government's response was positive. And you can write that off as conspiratorial QAnon right-wingers who are immersed in a world of you know, Breitbart and one American news. But the fact is, Joe Biden was promising a lockdown. And at least many voters read it that way. He was promising to force them to stay at home with their kids. Uh, The kids wouldn't be socialized. He was promising 
mask mandates. I believe mask mandates were on the ballot in certain places. COVID kind of became a wedge issue. And a lot of people, um, you know, including in places where I was, I've also, you know, been out in Trump country in Michigan earlier this year. And, you know, when you get a sense of the atmosphere out there, people just don't want to be locked down. COVID is already out there. People are sort of coping with it. And uh, I, I, I actually sympathize with working people who don't want to be locked down, who aren't like um, on some like uh, MacArthur Genius Grant fellowship where they can just stay at home and work on their, like learn a new language and work on, you know, some pointless, uh, you know, video for about how like we need renewable energy or something like they're, they're they just don't have that luxury. And Trump spoke to that. I think Trump did a lot of things that below the radar uh, were very politically savvy. Uh, he claimed credit for reopening Big Ten football, which is such a big institution in middle America in the swing states and Michigan, Wisconsin, places, Illinois, places like that. I mean, Illinois is not a swing state, um, but he took credit for that. He, you know, courted everyone from, um, Jorge Masvidal, who is a popular MMA fighter as a Latino proxy, to uh, Lil Pump, who is a popular SoundCloud rapper, who he announced as Little Pimp at his final rally, uh, you know, and got mocked for it. But these are the kind of like micro trends that drive voters. And, you know, Trump being close to a culture like MMA uh, shows a much more organic connection to a real grassroots constituency and growing popular subculture than Biden being in his basement. Also Biden being in his basement during COVID while Trump actually got COVID uh, demonstrated to a lot of people that Trump was more of a worker and a fighter in their minds. I'm not speaking for myself. So while Trump was mocked for getting COVID, I mean, we have now this culture of mocking people for getting coronavirus as if you know, they're responsible. He kind of took it proudly. He wanted to like rip open his shirt and have a Superman shirt under it. I thought that would have been for his base and a lot of people who don't typically vote a brilliant political move. Everyone on Twitter would have, and especially on left Twitter would have mocked it. But when you get out in the country, you just see it a different way. And also just traveling. So many people just submit to, uh, they, they'd say, well, we believe in science as if the scientists uh, at the NIH and elsewhere aren't compromised by Big Pharma or the Gates Foundation. And they just take their word and are afraid to travel. And you know, when you travel in this country or traveling to South America and traveling around Bolivia, yeah, people definitely take precautions. Everybody wears a mask. People are much more on board with wearing masks in Bolivia and sanitizing like when you go into public transportation in bolivia there are public workers there to spray you down and there are even foot pads in front of every restaurant in bolivia to clean your feet they don't have that in the u.s people do resist wearing masks here i notice on flights but people are out there traveling and in a flight the filtration system is pretty effective at filtering out germs it's probably a safer place to be than um, in a lot of uh, other indoor situations, but people are afraid to go there. And, you know, just breaking that barrier of fear and traveling constantly and seeing how the rest of the world continues to function, especially a place like Bolivia, where a huge percentage of the population is living close to the poverty line and can't afford to stay home and be under quarantine, or they'll just simply starve and die. Uh, you start to see 
the whole pandemic in a different way. And you don't see it as this public health catastrophe where lockdowns are imperative. You start to see a need to change our behavior. But I think uh, you get into the mindset of working people, including the frontline workers who, you know, if you go to like some gentrified area of Brooklyn or like the wealthy areas of Manhattan, everyone's like banging their pots and pans for the frontline workers and stuff. Those people aren't hearing the pots and pans. They just want to do their job and they're not like thinking of themselves as heroes who are risking their lives. So, I mean, it's just, we're now in a state where COVID is normalized. I don't think Biden will actually be able to impose lockdowns at this point. It'll hurt the economy. It'll hurt him politically. And uh, so it was all just a bunch of bluster and you'll get like Fauci as some little trophy. I don't know why everyone worships him and like defends him as this sacred figure. Um, but in also another you know factor in Bolivia was something that was very similar to the US was that they uh, bungled their initial response. I mean, I think COVID has become normalized here because of a failed initial response. And it was, but they didn't bungle just COVID, they bungled everything. The coup administration bungled everything. The economy was just completely mismanaged. Entire factories are shut down, entire industries went offline. And a lot of people voted for Luis Arce, the movement towards socialism candidate, just because he was the finance minister under Evo Morales at the time of a commodities boom, when a lot of uh, Bolivia's major exports, uh, like beef, for example, were selling really well. And a lot of people got wealthy, including people who hate Evo Morales. And so people outside the MAS base voted for him. Um, and we've seen now that country, I mean, I got out into the rural areas, into the uh, the tropic of Cochabamba, which is like the real heartland of, of MAS territory. It's where the coca growers union is, where all the, you know, coca farms are. Um, it's where Evo Morales was hidden during the coup. And people there uh, said that, you know, they treated COVID with natural plants and found some like effectiveness from things like eucalyptus and other indigenous medicines. But you know, they didn't have anything else to turn to. And now they're moving toward herd, herd immunity. So no one out there even bothers wearing a mask. They've just kind of been through the worst of it. And I think uh, uh, a lot of what I experienced and saw turned what I initially believed back in March when the sort of semi-lockdown began in the U.S. on its head. And that was really instructive for me um, beyond what I learned about Bolivian politics and its election system and the viciousness of the right wing and so on. You know, um, I do think that with, since we're bringing it back to the US elections, um, it's interesting because we are in a place where there actually is a really strong movement that was even after a year of this coup, as much of a disaster as it was even after these massacres that took place, uh, were able to still organize um, and they've been organizing and they've been politically active because they have no choice. I mean, it's like they're, they're poor mentioned, like people don't have money. They're poor. They're, you know, farmers in rural areas. They don't have a choice. They have to organize. And I kind of like look at places that have movements like that. And then I look at the U S where we don't have anything like that. And I'm just wondering, like, when you go to a place like Bolivia that has a strong 
leftist ideology in one of its largest parties, like the mass, like, why don't we have that in the U.S.? Well, I mean, for, for... <laughs> that's a really big question. I guess I can narrow it down a little bit. I'm just thinking like, I guess I'm where I'm going with this is like, um, I see a lot of sort of um, delusional talk um, that like somehow leftists, like we have all this power because people are joining the DSA. Um, when actually there is no organized left in the country that has like been able to highly like organize workers or has really organizing any, any big organizing nationwide structure beyond uh, like online and sort of like academics and you know middle-class people um, who live in places like Brooklyn and LA and stuff. So I'm just wondering like, like why do you think it is that in the US we don't have like a workers kind of movement like you might see in Bolivia? Yeah, I mean, you answered the question pretty well. I pretty much don't, <laughs> I don't really need to say anything. But uh, what, what does organizing mean? Like, I'm not an organizer. Whenever someone's like, I'm an organizer in the US, I'm like, all right, I'm slamming the door on you like the Avon lady or some like um, Jehovah's Witnesses. Like, I don't trust you. Like, that basically means you're like some astroturfed NGO person who like basically shovels people into back into the Democratic Party. But like, what does organizing mean in Bolivia, first of all, there was a lot of um, regret among the social movements that they did not sufficiently mobilize when Evo Morales was driven out of the country by the military. And they basically had to mobilize after the coup had sort of consolidated its power, which is what led to the massacre. The, we just did a, produced a mini documentary about in Sencata in the massive indigenous city of El Alto um, around this gas plant where the military just came in and mowed people down who were protesting what had just taken place. But they mobilized too late. They felt like they had rested on their laurels and gotten too comfortable and become demobilized because uh, things had been very good for them under Evo, who they helped bring to power. And so as the coup administration continued to kick the can down the road and delay the elections that they were supposed to call, citing the pandemic as a pretext, the social movements that represent the majority of Bolivians, and it's not just indigenous people, uh, although you know it, it, it is heavily indigenous. Um, you know the the miners' union, for example, is a really important part of the structure behind MAS. Um, they shut the country down. They made the country ungovernable in order to force the government to call elections, and no one is talking about making the United States ungovernable except for the sort of non-co-opted social movement that's completely amorphous and heavily infiltrated by law enforcement, which is just known uh, casually as Antifa, um, but you know, is not exactly controlled. But like, look, we're, what we're gonna see take place after the celebration of Biden just barely squeaking through um, in an election that was actually a major repudiation of corporate media and all of the technocratic institutions, big tech and, and others that attempted uh, to remove Trump before the election, um, they are going to be demobilized because they're all co-opted 
by big foundations. They are part of the nonprofit industrial complex. They don't even qualify as social movements. I saw uh, Jacobin say, uh, you know, we're going to hold Biden accountable. I mean, they had a decent analysis of what a Biden administration is going to be like. It's just going to basically be a ne big negotiation between him and Mitch McConnell for like uh, a center-right president's the kind of caretaker presidency that will be like the wet dream of all the never Trump Republicans and the Bush Republicans. That I mean, they 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 had a good analysis of that, but then they're like the Sunrise Movement will hold Biden accountable, and that's like like what what are they going to do? They were just basically taken out of obscurity by a bunch of Democrat Party billionaires who funded them through a dark money super PAC and put them one floor below the Sierra Fund here on F Street, which is funded to the tune of something like $60 million by Mike Bloomberg. So they're basically a part of the, the Sierra Fund, which is the quintessential big green NGO. Wait, are you telling me, are you telling me that a bunch of 10 and 12 and 14 year olds are not organizing themselves? To well, those are the, the, they use like kids, like, you know, as like little like uh, props, but they're not, these aren't 14 year olds who are organizers. Oh, no, like, no, no, no. These are adults. These are like people who are like our age. No, I'm just talking about like, it's like the, what I, when I think of the Sunrise Movement, I think of like, those kids who, wasn't that the same group that like those kids who approached Dianne Feinstein? Yeah, they brought a little kid out yeah. to say to Senator for Life, Dianne Feinstein, like, what are you going to do about the climate catastrophe? And, uh, you know, it, it was a good little moment for them. It made them seem anti-establishment, but they are completely part of the Democratic establishment. There'll, there'll be a little push and pull and they'll like try to push Biden to do something to like, um, you know, re-enter the Paris Climate Accords, which is not like anything to be celebrated. It's a completely phony agreement that not only doesn't go far enough, but contains actually horrible policies like that amount to cap and trade. Um, so I really uh, don't have any hope for anyone actually holding Biden's feet to the fire. I've seen like progressive people who are around Bernie saying Biden has a mandate. And if you allow Biden the perception that there's a mandate, all he's going to do is use it to ratify the center-right suburban strategy that he ran on in order to continue stepping on whatever passes for the left's face in the United States. That's all that's going to happen. So that, I mean, I, I just see people, maybe they're emotional and they got, they hate Trump so much that they are just feeling like the clouds are lifting, but they're doing themselves in and the social movements that are behind the Moss Party are not, um, they're not subservient to its political leadership. In fact, if you look at the initials of the Moss Party, it calls it the political instrument of the people. It's one of the longest acronyms, but in Spanish, it translates to the political instrument. And it basically means that the party is just an instrument of social movements. There's no way we can say that about the Democratic Party. And uh, that's depressing. I think, you know, there'll be maybe more space for people like us to make criticisms of foreign policy. If, if Twitter doesn't, if Twitter doesn't delete us all first, yeah. Well, I was just going to say without being called Russian agent, because that kind oh. of incentive is going to, it's just going to go back to a simmer from a boil. But, but at the same time, like I'm being censored today 
on Twitter. Uh, if you tried to retweet me, it will ask you if you want to read the head. If you, if there's more than headlines. Would you like to read the article first? Like Max Blumenthal doesn't accurately synthesize and summarize the article. So it, you have to go through like a whole procedure to, to quote tweet me or, or to, to retweet me. And then, as I mentioned, we had this documentary we produced on the Sinkata massacre. Um, we put it on YouTube and YouTube proceeded to censor it. There's no bloodshed in it. I mean, we have people talking about their relatives being killed um, in a very non-graphic way. It's not like Saw 2. There's no bloodshed. <laughs> Which probably and is it was, online. It was yeah. flagged as inappropriate content and you have to enter your age in order to watch it. And Twitter eliminated the share button on the video. I'm sorry, YouTube eliminated the share button on the video. Wow. I suspect like some, you know, Latin American right wingers who, you know, they're very, very afraid of this massacre uh, and its implications in Bolivia because the interior minister, who I'll talk about in a second, the defense minister and Janine Añez, uh, face the very real possibility of being put on trial for it. And so I think there was a mass flagging campaign, very similar to the campaign that was waged against uh, the gray zone on Wikipedia, where we were listed as a deprecated source through a basically coordinated campaign by neoconservatives and Latin American right-wingers who are threatened by our coverage and total violation of Wikipedia rules. So uh, yeah, censorship is going to be an even bigger factor. I mean, I'm glad you brought it up. Like Russiagate, the Russiagate, as, as I said from the beginning, and we all said from the beginning of the Trump administration and people just ignored me or laughed at me, or thought I was crazy or a Russian agent. Russiagate was just kind of a pretext for the management of democracy by a technocratic neoliberal elite that sought to return to power on the heels of a administration like Biden's. And now they've got the White House, they've got the Department of Homeland Security, they've got the FBI, they've got all of those security state mechanisms to impose the most insidious but sweeping censorship regime in uh, the history of the internet. Uh, so I wanted to read this. Uh, it may be self-evident what is being said, and there's not maybe a lot of explanation that needs to be added, but I appreciated what Evo Morales had to say on the U.S. election and Wyatt Reed flagged this. He said, uh, nothing changes even if Biden wins, and quote, a racist fascist right-wing loses to a right-wing that's perhaps more moderate. And the quote continued, uh, quote, the U.S. people vote but don't govern. Those who govern are transnationals, capitalism, business owners. And basically, as Wyatt pointed out, he was referring to those who overthrew him last year in 2019, uh, those interests. So, uh, you know, I think along these lines, I mean, uh, you know, you've been following the, the censorship of, uh, of, of Donald Trump's speeches in the media, and, and how they think we're incapable of making decisions for ourselves and sorting through the lies and distortions. Um, Silicon Valley is really taking it upon themselves to uh, shield and protect uh, Biden and Democrats from anything that come from the GOP. And also again, like infantilizing us, believing that we can't make 
our own conclusions. Uh, but I also wanted you to speak to, you know, what the um, aftermath of these elections in Bolivia might be, uh, because you have institutions like the Organization for American States that have escaped any accountability for their role. There's tools of the U.S. government. Um, I imagine Joe Biden enters into the White House, and there's not going to be any effort to look at what the Trump administration was doing with Bolivia and re-examine that policy. It likely will we'll just seek continuity. So I wanted you to speak to the, the kinds of uh, the, the neoliberalism from the United States within Bolivia and what you observed while you were on the ground in Bolivia. Yeah, I think that one of the, just to make a quick comment about the implications of the U.S. election in light of Evo's comments, which are as true as saying that Wednesday occurs in the middle of the week and that the sky is blue. Well, at least it's blue now. Sometimes it's gray in DC, which means that your solar panels won't work. Um, but uh, basically, Trump was going, if he had won, was going to receive the victory that he won in Florida as ratification of the radical strategy uh, the maximum pressure strategy he applied to Venezuela, Cuba, and was pushing in Latin America. And, it, you know, Trump winning was going to bolster figures who cozied up to him and kind of portrayed themselves as his apprentices, like uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. So a Trump victory would have been a great victory for the Latin American right. Uh, Biden victory, it, it's sort of like, how does Netanyahu view the election? He can definitely live with a Biden victory, uh, but he certainly would have preferred Trump because he got his wish list. And there's going to be some tension, but then you have Biden, the figure who said that, you know, if Israel didn't exist, we would have had to have created it. That's kind of how the Latin American right feels about this election, too, I think, uh, because Biden, it's not like Biden's going to go down to Venezuela and strike a deal with Nicolas Maduro. And uh, because of fracking, because of shale, uh, and its explosion in the United States, domestic gas and oil production, the United States doesn't really need Venezuela the way it used to. It's able to impose sanctions. And that's another reason. There's a geostrategic reason, along with an economic reason, why Biden and his running mate, Kamala Harris, were so adamant in emphasizing that they were not going to ban fracking. So beyond that, um, Bolivia's election was very different from ours this time, and I observed it. I observed, I was an international election observer, and we did our job. Uh, we didn't take it lightly. Uh, we thought it was important to see as many polling places as we could. Uh, we even, you know, had Wyatt Reed, who was part of our delegation, go to another city to observe polling places. We worked all day. We went to far more polling places than the EU and OAS delegations, which were part of the uh, coup that I, I mean, I can talk about that all day, but they were part of the coup last year. And so we went to seven polling places. We divided up into teams. And what I saw was pretty impressive. Uh, first of all, voting is mandatory in Bolivia. Everyone has to vote. So it's really a, ref a national referendum. It's a true national referendum. And we went to pro-MAS uh, pro areas and we went to pro-MESA areas. Carlos Mesa was the main challenger to 
Moss Party candidate Luis Arce, and he is sort of a he's a lot like Biden. In fact, he this is a little bit of a digression, but he actually enjoyed a fellowship at a think tank in Washington called the Inter-American Dialogue, which is uh, overseen by a Democrat, uh, kind of a, a liberal guy who supports the Latin American right generally, Michael Shifter. And Meso is very socially liberal and economically neoliberal. Um, he's, it's, he's a lot like a, a Democratic Party candidate would be. And so we went to the areas where he was popular, which are like middle class and upper middle class areas around La Paz. And what they do is they, you know, after voting, there's a box containing all of the paper ballots. They don't have electronic ballots at each voting station. And there'll be like 15 voting stations in a gymnasium. And then each uh, chief at the voting station will take each ballot out, look at it, and declare who was voted for. Comunidad uh, Ciudadana, it was Mesa's party. So you'll hear someone at a pro Mesa uh, voting station say, Comunidad Ciudadana, Comunidad Ciudadana, over and over again. And then someone behind them is marking each vote on an acta or a tally. And so those tallies are public. So at each voting station, you see how many votes were tabulated for each candidate. And then those are photographed and they go to the party headquarters and the pollsters from across the country. So there's almost no way to commit fraud when you have it that transparent. Um, there were so, some other mechanisms that were put into place to prevent a narrative from being created as it was in 2019 that there had been fraud and that was really positive. I don't wanna go into details, but I actually you know, was, planning to see something much more shady than what I saw. And we came out at the end and we said that this process that we observed was free and fair and transparent. So at the end of the day on vote on election day in Bolivia, we were waiting for the results and all of the channels, the cable channels, which are, they make Fox News look like Walter Cronkite. They are like firmly in the back pocket of the right. They're run by the oligarchy. The state TV channel was taken over by the coup administration. And they were all promising exit polls, exit polls on the way soon. No exit polls came. It was seven o'clock, then eight o'clock. Uh, we were at a hotel downtown where a lot of the um, other observation delegations were hanging out. It got weird at nine o'clock. Everyone started to whisper, this is how it's gonna go down. This is how they're gonna steal it. They're afraid to release the results. And so it's like around 10 o'clock, we went to Moss headquarters. Our delegation gave a press conference declaring that, you know, the po exit polls need to be made public. By 11 o'clock, things got even more nervous because where we were outside Mass Moss headquarters, surrounded by media, was also surrounded by the military. And I'll get into that in a second. So we left. I got back to where I was staying by midnight, and it was then that the results were announced, a landslide victory for Moss. I don't know why it wasn't released before. And then you just started to hear fireworks going off in the city, in the, in the working class areas, in the indigenous areas, like the sounds of celebration. And what we felt, and I'll explain why, but what we felt was a sense of relief because we had been uh, threatened in a very real way by the coup administration, in a very real and personal way. And so 
just a sense of relief washed over us. That sounds pretty incredible. Um, I wanted to move to a somewhat like uh, related topic, which is um, you briefly mentioned this earlier uh, about the Miami, um, the Miami situation, how Joe Biden basically lost Miami or not lost. I'm sorry. He gained less support in Miami than Hillary Clinton had in 2016. I think she was like 30 points ahead of Donald Trump in Miami and 2016 and Joe Biden like had about half, he was about 12 points ahead of Joe Biden this time around. So he lost support among Latinos, specifically in Miami. I mean, I saw a lot of people suggesting that this meant that that uh, this led to or this is like some trend across the country. I don't think that's the case. However, that does lead me. I do want to get your, your your talk on this since we're kind of going back between Bolivia and the U.S. Is um, there was the uh, issue of Donald Trump, sorry, I'm super tired. I like can't form sentences very well, so bear with me. I haven't slept very much this week. But what I'm trying to get at is that Donald when, when Trump- Biden's line, you can sleep and just relax and yeah. we go to br we'll go brunch tomorrow. No, we're gonna go back to brunch. Yeah, I'll see you guys for brunch tomorrow. Um, but what I'm trying to get at is that it's uh, kind of interesting that Donald Trump was able to gain support among people of color his support among, I mean, it wasn't so significant that they overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly supported him, but the Democrats under Biden lost some support among black men, black women, uh, basically every demographic except for white, uh, white men, which I thought was really interesting. Um, whereas Donald Trump gained a little bit of support uh, from black voters and Latino voters, although I don't know if that's specifically because of Miami or not, um, as well as uh, Muslims, like there was like a poll done on Muslim support for Trump. There was two polls. One of them had Muslim support for him at like 35%, which is significantly more obviously than four years ago. Another one had him at 17% among Muslim voters, which is still more than what he got six, uh, four years ago. And what's interesting about that is that four years ago, you know, or I guess, yeah, I mean, Donald Trump ran on calling Mexicans rapists and basically accusing all Muslims of being ISIS. So what do you make of that? Like, what do you make of that change in support? Is that significant? What does it mean? Let me uh, first try to kind of connect that to the my personal experience in Bolivia, um, which I was kind of building up to. And I think it's, it's relevant. When we entered the country, um, we were followed, I, I assume, by you know intelligence agents from the Bolivian coup regime. Oh my God, Max! Uh, I that feels like it was so long ago. Literally, only just three weeks ago, but time goes so slow right now. I'm just, I'm just like I forgot about that you were like literally stalked by right wingers on your way to Bolivia. Go ahead. Yeah, they Sorry, could have been right wing. Like they could have been right wing activists, but the uh, the doxing or whatever you want to call it of me was rolled out through right-wing activists. And we were flying through Santiago. So someone took a picture of me first getting off the flight there uh, from Miami. So they came from Miami. They knew I was on the flight. Then they photographed us, um, you know, sitting down to eat something in the airport. Me, uh, Wyatt Reed, and um, I guess Anya wasn't facing the camera and you saw Ben there, but they were really focusing on me, I think mainly because I have a Wikipedia page. And, uh, then they uh, put out those photos and said, you know, Castro Chavista, Max Blumenthal is in the country to, he's a terrorist, um, you know, 
it, it's, it became this huge national uproar. It was reported in Pagina Siete, which is one of the big newspapers of the right in Bolivia. And the interior minister, Arturo Murillo, who is the enforcer of the Añez regime and was responsible for that massacre in Sencata I mentioned before, he personally threatened us and said, we know who you are, we know where you are, we will throw you in jail or put you on a plane. Um, and that was when we came into Santa Cruz and Santa Cruz is really like an extension of Miami. It's kind of like the base of the Bolivian right. And I'll talk about it in a second, but right now they are trying to rally another military coup there. And we had planned instead of just transferring to, for, to a plane to La, La Paz, which is in the more Western, more pro-MAS part of the country to spend a day in Santa Cruz and see this giant rally for the far right candidate, Fernando Camacho, Luis Fernando Camacho, and just to, to take in the flavor of that without knowing that this was gonna be what we, was confronting us. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say it was terrifying, but, you know, it was a little nerve wracking to be wondering if people were going to recognize us and do something to us, or if they were gonna find us in our hotel and deport us. But the conspiracy theories about me, I think this is what's relevant to understanding what took place in Miami uh, with Donald Trump doing so well. They just spread like wildfire. People were literally saying in, 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 in very well trafficking Facebook posts that I am a narco trafficker, uh, that we are here to interfere. Basically like everything that was said about Russian agents or whatever RT in 2017 and 16 by um, demented resistance liberals was being said about us times 10. And this conspiratorial uh, mentality and this hateful, obviously racist mentality and, uh, and, and, and anti-communist fervor is just a part of the ethos of the Latin American right, which has found a nest for itself and a base in Miami for plotting regime change in their former countries. That's pretty much what unites them. And in the past years, the Cuban American right, which we all know of and are very familiar with, has been supplemented by other South American right-wing groups from Colombia, for example, from also Bolivia, they have 100,000 Bolivians in the Miami-Dade in, in Florida, uh, from uh, Brazil, from um, Peru, from Venezuela. Venezuela is the most important block there now. Um, the ambassador for Juan Guaido, Carlos Vecchio, the fake coup ambassador, Basically, what he's done since their coup failed is build a gigantic lobbying organization in Miami, the same way that in the 1970s, Jorge Mascanosa, the sort of mafia don of the Cuban-American right, built the Cuban-American National Fund, Cuban-American National Foundation. And it was very effective in mobilizing votes for Donald Trump. And it was Donald Trump who in the two nights before the election held an emergency last minute rally in Miami um, at the airport, like 14 miles out of town. And there was Roberto Marrero was there. That was Juan Guaido's chief of staff. He's not even an American. He was speaking on behalf <laughs> of Donald Trump, literally interfering in our elections. Like, can you imagine if a Russian came out to speak for Donald Trump, who was Do uh, Vladimir Putin's chief of staff? 
if Dmitry Peskov came and was like, yo, yo must go to the polls for uh, Trump, you know, it would never, that it would have been a freak out, but Guaido's people, they're cool. Colombian officials came to Miami and went on right-wing media to plump for Donald Trump, to rustle up votes for Trump. This is, these were like foreign officials from the right-wing Ivan Duque administration. And they were just coming in and it worked. Uh, basically, the Republican strategy in Florida has been to ride those um, new diaspora groups to bolster the Cuban bloc and turn Florida into a permanent red state. And I think it was a huge success. And it offset um, the growth of the Puerto Rican population in Florida, which has come to Florida and you know is mostly centered around Orlando because of the neoliberal policies of the Obama administration that destroyed Puerto Rico's economy and like wrecked the lives of all of the youth. It's like all of these educated youth are like now trying to work jobs at Disneyland. Um, that's their future. So basically um, the conspiratorial, anti-communist, hateful mentality coupled with the fact that Donald Trump did exactly what the Latin American right wanted in Venezuela they brought, they denormalized with Cuba. Um, that I think flipped Florida for him and was a huge factor. Um, and, and then of course, you know, you got Joe Scarborough and all of these never Trump elements saying, well, you know, they lost, the Democrats lost because they were too socialist. Like, yeah, Joe, <laughs> Joe Biden was too much of a socialist. It really did, it was a factor in why Joe Biden was running around attacking Bernie and saying he's not a socialist. And it was a factor in the Democratic primary. Uh, remember when uh, the last debate between Biden and Bernie, where Bernie just voluntarily rolled over and died for someone who was like already like like in early stage dementia? They had a Univision uh, anchor asking questions, and her question to Bernie is, "How are you going to win Florida when you're saying you're a socialist?" And Bernie was like, "I am absolutely not a social." I, I am a socialist, but I hate authoritarianism. I'm against all authoritarians. And Biden just kept hammering him for it. So it was a yeah. factor there too. And basically what the Democrats have to do is give people something in Florida who aren't part of that little block, but they, they, um, they, they don't offer anything. And that goes to the other part of your question. I mean, that might've been like a long way to it. Why did Trump increase his share of votes among black and brown people. Well, I mean, a lot of the Latinos in Miami are white. Like, but right. that's another, that's actually really frustrated me because people don't, didn't understand that. Like they were suggesting that Trump had a bunch of like Mexicans supporting him or something when it was just like a bunch of white people from Latin America who are just but, like I mean, other people. But, but, you know, the, the percentage was low. It was like 5%, but a, more, a higher uh, total of black vote for Trump. There are a lot of reasons for that. One is that the Democrats have never done anything for black people. They never produce any material change for them. Another is like smart people can, critical minded people can see the fact that Joe Biden was the author of the crime bill that helped decimate black America. I mean, it dealt one of the biggest blows to black America since the Jim Crow era. It brought back, he was the author of the new Jim Crow. And Trump emphasized that in the second debate where he trounced Biden, contrary to like what all of these like left pundits who refused to be objective said. Uh, Trump 
as I mentioned before, he catered to like micro trends that cut across racial and class lines. Like, you know, he was willing to uh, do press conferences with Lil Wayne or Lil Pump or people that like Joe Biden would have considered deplorable and Kamala Harris wouldn't have wanted to be around. But people who have real cachet, in the end, like all the Democrats could do is like bring out like the mid 2000s with Eminem doing this like pathetic eight mile soundtrack. And uh, the power of Pentecostal Christianity is underestimated. And it also goes back to Latin America. Pentecostal Christianity is really like a soft power weapon that has been used by the United States for decades since the Rockefeller brothers helped fund uh, the birth of these Pentecostal Assemblies of God churches in Brazil to help them gain access to the Amazon and exploit it. And Pentecostal Christianity is extremely popular in Africa. And it is extremely popular in black communities in the US as well as white communities. So everybody was laughing about Trump's spiritual advisor, Paula White, this complete huckster uh, speaking in tongues. It's known as glossolalia in Pentecostal, charismatic, charismatic Pentecostal Christianity when they speak in tongues and they're, they're conveying the secret language of God. Oh, Rabasaka, Shandalala, baby. Oh, Tandalala, Jesus. Oh. They like saying the names of the Jackson uh, family. Oh, Janet Michael, Janet Michael LaToya, you know? And it's like, it sounds so funny, but that's like how they get into it. And if you look at those crowds, it's a very multiracial crowd that's sitting there as she's like, victory, victory, victory for Trump, victory for Trump. You're, and there are many black people in that audience who are just like, yes, victory for Trump. And that's just what they're into. They're into that. They're into the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel was a huge weapon aimed at destroying the civil rights spirit of the Black community in America. They're replacing all of the traditional Baptist preachers who believe that God is the God of justice, uh, who use that kind of prophetic voice that you, you know still hear from figures like Cornell West with people like Creflo Dollar and his wife, what's her name, Taffy? Creflo Dollar, he speaks to like stadiums in Madison Square Garden filled with mostly black people. And he tells them that, you know, if you give me your money, you're planting a seed in heaven that will multiply, 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 you will prosper. And, you know, that's, that's real. That's just the reality that I think benefited Trump. And, uh, if you see all those photos of Trump with people laying their hands on him, again, it's multiracial pastors. There are some black pastors there and they're laying hands on Donald Trump while everyone else is like, he's a racist. And so I thought it was only natural that him being willing to cater to that crowd in such a naked way, more than even George W. Bush was, he was going to increase his um, share of vote by a small but um, possibly pivotal amount. So uh, before we would conclude, I just have a couple things to raise. And if you have any reaction, uh, you know, first, I noticed that the New York Times actually was on this issue of disinformation that you were describing as it um, occurred in the Miami area. But I, I would suspect that they were only doing it because they failed to find anything that they could tie to Russia or Iran. And in fact, the framing of their article is actually that 
they went looking and they found nothing, but they found Spanish disinformation as they uh, term it. And so I'd like you to speak to the capture of our institutions that simply is just going to be ignoring this kind of disinformation that spreads these conspiracy theories, you know, the kind of work that the gray zone does following the right wing factions that really do pump out this material and do affect our, um, our, our ability to engage democratically because everyone is being brainwashed. Um, and, and the fact that all these people in and around the Biden orbit have been involved in these factions and these institutions that have been pushing things like the Russiagate narrative for the past four years. And those are likely the people who are going to staff a Biden administration and have those links back to the Silicon Valley companies that are going to be, you know, as the right wing would term it, it's the only way that I have to, to speak of it very simply, this, this nanny state impulse to basically be moderating our ability and access to, to access information on the off chance that we come in contact with something toxic and it, it, it would provide them with some trouble with actually being able to, to, to govern and they simply uh, don't want that. Um, so, so that's one thing that I'd, I'd like you to speak to. And then um, if you're able to um, take some time, we didn't get a chance to, to talk to you um, since you put out the thing about the green billionaires that were involved with this activist network of pushing the planet of the humans. And I wanted to make sure I raised this on this broadcast because Rania and I, we actually had Josh Fox on our show. And, and, and in a way, I ended up getting duped into providing a platform for Josh Fox to do the very thing that you exposed with this gray zone report that was really um, crucial. And I had seen this documentary um, and I had appreciated the network that was exposed, you know, this green billionaire network that again, we're gonna probably see staffing the Biden administration with Al Gore and John Kerry and all of these people who have access to these hedge funds that are making billions off of so-called sustainable investing. Um, they're going to have positions in the Biden administration. Uh, but yeah, we gave a platform to, to Josh Fox to push the censorship of Michael Moore's film. And, um, and I, I ended up removing it from our, 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 the YouTube channel in which we distribute our show because, you know, it just seemed unconscionable. But at the time, when I talked to Rania, Rania hadn't seen the film. And there that's, was like, yeah, that's not even what we had him on for. We had him on to talk about something else. And he had just like that day launched his email campaign to get people to call like to get people to sign a petition to answer but to conclude i was the, just saying the, that he was he used our show i mean he very deliberately was ready he knew we were gonna be offering him a platform and in that night he had sent out his petition which you you you, you detail and and he came and he used our show so I don't know if you have to, anything to say to the first thing. The second thing is probably more interesting, but those are the things that I wanted you to ask before we wrapped up the show or answer. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep it quick because you know the, the, the piece I did on Planet of the Humans was like 10,000 words. I mean, we could do a whole separate show about it, but just on Josh Fox, he reached out to you to come on your show, I assume. I don't know. So before he had gotten into this, we were pretty friendly with him and I trusted him as a, as a speaker. And, and then, you know, he really outed himself with this Planet of the Humans episode as somebody who is just, um, oh, I guess we'll say useful idiot, for lack of a better word. 
Yeah, I, I um, think that it was positive that you hosted him, but it, a lot of people in our kind of ecosystem, our political intellectual ecosystem, they don't understand environmental politics very well. And I use the opportunity of having the whole world or the country slow down because of you know the first few months of the lockdown and pandemic to try to understand it better because I knew something wasn't right. And I knew something wasn't right when this censorship campaign emerged. And what I can say just in brief is that I came to see the censorship campaign as an as the same kind of like is like an industry since censorship campaign, like what the oil and gas industry would do to a film that threatened it. Uh, maybe like Josh Fox's first uh, major successful film, Gasland, probably I think is his only successful film on the fracking industry. Uh, or what the Syrian regime change crowd did, including the founder of the White Helmets, James Lemercier, did when my book, The Management of Savagery, came out on a you know fairly well-established label, uh, Verso, in order to try to sabotage my book tour. Uh, it basically Josh Fox was not some independent actor, and this is what Planet of the Humans shows that him and a lot of the other censors who were behind the suppression campaign, Bill McKibben while they present themselves as these green warriors are de facto lobbyists for a renewables industry that represents a $40 trillion profit center for hedge funders and people who are, you know, financiers and oligarchs like Mike Bloomberg or Al Gore, who runs a hedge fund that's specifically aimed at cashing in on this industry. Josh Fox's latest production, which was, um, it wasn't canceled, but most of it was canceled at a theater in New York, uh, allegedly because of his bad behavior, which he blamed on anti-Semitism. I didn't know he was Jewish. Um, it was produced, executive produced by someone named Tom Dinwoody. Tom Dinwoody is a renewables industry tycoon who has over 40 patents on solar technology and profits off of all these government subsidies that are going to go into the solar industry in a Biden administration. A solar industry, I should mention, that has been not doing so well since the Obama administration and which faces serious challenges and which is you know, producing a technology that is not necessarily good for the environment. I don't wanna get into all that, but basically Josh Fox is being supported by a solar tycoon who is a major funder of all of these, do, what he calls do tanks, but are actually think tanks where they work on these collaborations between the four major banks and the environmental, the green lobby to push green tech. So we need to stop seeing the Green New Deal in these rosy terms and start asking serious questions about what form it will take and who's pushing it and whether they're just activists or PR operatives. Similarly, Naomi Klein, she wanted to censor this film. She approached Michael Moore before it was even out and asked him to retract it, to take his name off it. She denounced it. She signed Josh Fox's letter. Well, the very same foundations, which are uh, funding Bill McKibben's organization are funding her. She's been uh, on, she's on Bill McKibben's board. They are lobbying for this entire project 
that will benefit Wall Street in a different way. And I think all the things she said about growth, just endless consumption and growth being the problem, which were conveyed in this film in a way that I think very few documentaries have conveyed, all the things she said were just put off, taken off the table in order for her to protect her institutional allegiances and her career. And uh, that was pathetic. I mean, these are the people who should know better. It was absolutely pathetic and revealing. I think the most revealing thing is when Biden, after receiving this endorsement from the Sunrise Foundation, from the Sunrise Movement, the day he announced his environmental plan, weeks after, he flagrantly declares that he supports fracking. And then Kamala Harris goes out of her way in the VP debate to declare that she supports fracking. And Josh Fox says, well, uh, this is actually a, a good thing somehow. And he, I still support them and we need to vote for Biden. All he was doing was punching left the whole campaign and attacking anyone who is suspicious of Biden. And it just shows what a complete unprincipled opportunist he is. And then Naomi Klein responds, well, we're just going to make him do it. We're going to uh, make him ban fracking. In a, and I still support Biden. I mean, give me a fucking break. He's not gonna, you're not gonna make Biden do it. You're not gonna make him give up domestic oil production because what, what protests have you been a part of anyway? And so I thought that was absurd. And then, you know, for Naomi Klein to attack Glenn Greenwald because he leaves the intercept and starts a substack and to mock him for starting a substack when she has an endowed fellowship. And during a time of like economic collapse and pandemic, she has an endowed fellowship that has been supported by the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Brothers and Corporate America and the Harvey Weinstein Fund. And it's the Gloria Steinem uh, Gender Studies Endowed Fellowship at Rutgers University. Yes, Harvey Weinstein gave Gloria Steinem a bunch of money to create an endowment for Naomi Klein. And she's attacking people, independent journalists who use Substack. So these people just completely exposed themselves even after my article came out. And I think we just need to ask questions about the agenda they're pushing and whether it will actually be the environmental panacea they say it will be. Um, then there's the disinformation question you asked. I'll try to, I mean, I said I was gonna be brief, but I got kind of worked up. Well, well, what if I just put it simply? I mean, what do you think people should have at the top of their mind as Biden staffing his administration? And there's going to be these individuals like Jake yeah. Sullivan and others who have been tied to these yeah, I mean, Jake Sullivan was Hillary Clinton's top foreign policy advisory responsible for her you know, positions, which are wrongly described as hawkish, which are actually just straight up militaristic. And he knows nothing about the world. He's just sort of this, like basically a unalloyed blob creature. Actually, he denounced me. He issued a formal condemnation of me during the uh, 2016 campaign on behalf of the Hillary campaign because uh, I criticized Elie Wiesel for cozying up to right-wingers and taking all this money from Sheldon Adelson and Pastor John Hagee. So like the Hillary campaign denounced me and the Trump campaign denounced me. It was like the most interesting campaign of my life. And that was partly thanks to Jake Sullivan. Um, but there'll be all of these characters surrounding Biden. And 
you know, I think it's unfair to say that a Biden foreign policy and a Trump foreign policy would be exactly the same. But what Biden's going to try to do is repair our alliances in order to head off the trajectory we were moving towards in the world, towards a multipolar world, uh, beefing up NATO, beefing up the EU, uh, you know, making, helping uh, J Japan remilitarize, uh, you know, undercutting Moon in South Korea and creating this bulwark against China, uh, th those kinds of things, the pivot to Asia, we're going to see those in a Biden administration. And then, you know, uh, an Iran deal will be designed to contain Iran. So um, it will be different than Trump. And there's all, then there's this sense among that group of people that they've lost a large part of the United States population. They look at them with contempt. They see them as, you know, conspiratorial QAnon idiots or the, you know, or white racists or whatever. And maybe there's some truth to that, but they know that there's a complete lack of consensus for the agenda that they are pushing and the technocracy that they represent. And that will necessitate more of what you call this nanny state censorship, where they think they know better than everyone, where everyone has to be treated as little children. And we saw a nice preview of it with the president of the United States' speeches being cut off for fact checks by the anchors. And the fact checks on CNN amounted to basically Jake Tapper having a meltdown about how, oh, Trump is attacking our democratic institutions, as if CNN cares about our democratic institutions when they celebrated the spies who wiretapped the president, who sent confidential secret police operatives into the Trump campaign like Stefan Halper to entrap its staff and then ran this phony uh, in intelligence operation that we know of as Russiagate for four years. And then they hired those very spies to be contributors on their networks. And they are claiming that they care about democratic institutions. It's ridiculous. So we're moving into a phase of, I think many other countries are already there, of managed democracy, where a technocratic elite represented by officially a democratic party will try to not just manufacture consent, but manage uh, people's ability to access information in order to suppress skepticism about an agenda that people already largely reject. It's not gonna work. I don't know where it's gonna go to, but what I would say is that those of us who are in alternative media, uh, whether within reason, I'm not gonna go collaborate with someone who's pushing like xenophobia and white supremacist propaganda, but within reason, we need to collaborate against pol across political lines in order to organize a movement to create a countervailing uh, form of pressure against Silicon Valley, because we do generate a lot of traffic for them. We do, whether we like it or not, generate a lot of revenue for them. And you know we should be able to take it away and move elsewhere, or at least put them on blast for what they're doing. And right now there's no movement. Um, so that's what I think is imperative uh, to get ready for the Biden era. Well, that was very well said. <laughs> I just want to go to brunch. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I when are we so getting omelets? After, after, yeah. after Biden got a lead in oh Pennsylvania. Georgia, I, I just want to sing Georgia over mimosas. <laughs> and, 
I love Georgia. I think we should just kill everybody in red states. <laughs> that's, I feel like actually, I kind of feel like that's the mentality of liberal elites is they want to just like kill off Trump voters. Like, and when I say, I just mean like they, they don't want to even like understand there's almost 70 million people came out to vote for this guy. And you don't want to understand why. Like, there's a lot of different reasons why, but like, how do you expect ever? And said they want to just manage information and they think that'll work, but I feel like that'll just end up increasing. I mean, those, those voters, like, I, oh, I'm not allowed to say that the voters should be like torpedoed because like then we'll get banned from Twitter, like Steve Bannon, while, uh, while, uh, fucking Marco Rubio's Twitter account is still up after he called for the murder of and like beheading and, and like sodomization by bayonet of Nicolas Maduro. Uh, yep. that, was, that was cool. But yeah, I'm not going to call for Trump, the Trump voters to be torpedoed, but like, I don't want anyone to be torpedoed. I'm against torpedoes. I'm anti-torpedo. Um, it, 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 it's a completely Nazi invention fired by U-boats. I'm against it. So don't ban my Twitter account. Um, but the voters, man, like those Trump voters, like those aren't like the white working class or whatever. Like those people are some of the most toxic assholes of our society. And they're, they're a product you know, of our society, but they're a product of our society. Like, yeah, the, well, they're, yeah, they're part of it. They're a big part of it. They're they, a big part of it. Trump is kind of like a representation, in my opinion, of like America's worst elements in a person. Like, I mean, if like America was a person. I don't, I gotta say, I, I was building up to something. Sorry. Yes, he, he represents all of that. Yes, it's totally true. And like, you know, there's just so many suburban assholes who like Trump because he is like, he reminds them of a quality in themselves that they want to put on display. And when I was in Miami, there were trucks just driving by randomly. I'd just be sitting on a corner and some some truck with some big vocifus white dude with in it, and he'd just be like, rah, rah, and I didn't even know what he was yelling, but it was like <laughs> yelling. It was like, this is the day ahead of the election when white guys get to drive around with big Trump flags and scream at people on the street who don't even know what they're saying. And there was be like little children there. And I don't know that that's real, but there also is a real justifiable hatred for the neoliberal technocracy and those like the wine moms and the neocons and just the repulsive people who think that they are entitled to be in power. The people who embraced Bill Crystal, Bill Crystal, the, all of those people. I mean, we need, like, I would love to see a reverse Mariella boat lift and just to send them all off to an, a distant atoll in the Pacific consisted of like discarded plastic bags where like Bill Crystal and Piero Midiar and uh, Nira Tandon and Anna Navarro and the entire Lincoln Project can just like fight over seagull carcasses to survive with no Wi-Fi connection or phone data at all. Like we need that in this country. And I think then we could start kind of coming together, I would think, you know, and send the, the Trump voters with them. But basically the problem right now is that if there were a candidate who was better than Bernie, more maybe more relatable, but was pushing real pro-working class policies, de-emphasizing all of the um, 
the silly identity politics stuff. I mean, you can't like completely rule out identity, but the still like when, when Elizabeth Warren said that I will have a trans child select my education secretary, like that kind of stuff. Uh, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> it wouldn't matter at this point because the work, those, those working people, the people out there that are just pissed off and wanted to just give the finger to the neoliberal technocracy will no longer believe that the Democrat can ever run someone who represents just the broader needs of a working class. Like, even if they really had someone who sincerely promised healthcare, free healthcare, free college, uh, I don't know if anyone would believe them at this point coming from the Democratic Party because of what the party is and has been for so long. And, uh, that's that's just a problem that's going to be with us. I really like think that the time that the possibility of voting for so, voting in socialism in the U.S. is over, as it is in the U.K. We saw what happened to Jeremy Corbyn. We saw what happened to Bernie Sanders. I don't think it's going to happen for the rest of my life. And the people who say they're socialists in Congress are basically just Democrats. Uh, I don't I don't really I, I don't. You know, for that and by the way and also bernie would not have won stop stop saying that he wouldn't have won they would have done I the would have, i actually think he would have been crushed the democrats would have been like crush him yes do it all the institutions that were against trump would have turned on him because at least trump represents the interests of the ruling class that, that right and i think i think that's plays into something else um about the issue of these policies. Everybody keeps saying Medicare for all super popular, minimum wage hikes are super popular, and that's true. They are popular among a majority of the population, but people also forget that we have all these corporate consultants um, and like very wealthy interests that will take something that's really popular and they have the ability to market it as something evil. And I think we saw that in, or something really evil marketed as something popular that you should support. like. And even among educated people, they're easily propagandized. Look what happened in California, the yeah. supposedly most liberal or most progressive uh, state in the country. And Uber was able to spend like $160 million um, to convince people they should support Uber not having to give benefits to its drivers. And that passed like overwhelmingly because, and then, you know, on the other hand, like it's because you have these corporate consultants uh that max you mentioned i saw your tweet about there was like an la times article noting the the role of kamala harris's family in pushing that proposition in california you could talk more about that if you want but there are these corporate consultants that for the my entire life since i can remember have been able to take these really popular policies and convince people that they're bad so i think that that's also something that that's a huge obstruction for any socialist policies in this country because corporations run this country. They have all the power, they have all the money, they have all the experts in the world to convince voters to vote against their interests. And I think that there's a bit of an overconfidence among the, you know, whatever the left means. The D when I say the left, I guess I mean like the DSA. I think there's a bit of an overconfidence about how easy it is to left. actually. Yeah, the acceptable left. I think there's a there's an overconfidence about how easy it is to just vote in socialism if it if these policies are popular. It doesn't work like that in this country. Yeah, people are like those Fox News polls show that most Americans want 
uh, free healthcare, but yeah, when the rubber hits the road, it's another story. And the, yeah, the Republicans, the Democrats, who, anyone who's against that has way more money on their side and they can frame it as socialized healthcare that will take away your freedom, peel off enough people. Prop 22 is a perfect example of just what a sellout culture we have. And, you know, I see it in our media. Um, I, I, I've watched just almost all of my contemporaries, not all of them, but almost all of them move to the center in the last decade, chasing opportunities, being co-opted and neutralized and foundationized and given grants, and uh, then intimidated against saying what they used to, what they would have said 10 years ago about something like Syria. Um, the Intercept is just a perfect example of that, of just like journalists getting hundreds of thousands of dollars to basically do nothing and incentivized to not cross any red lines of what it takes to be on the acceptable left. And, and they're just worthless. They're, they're just, they're, they're completely worthless. I have no respect for them. Like I've just, I've seen so many people I was around the nation and elsewhere just basically become like boring Democrats or do nothing. They say nothing anymore. And it's just a small, it, it, that's the culture we're in. We see it up close. Um, but, you know, it's the same in this, in a capitalist society in so many other spheres, including in politics. So, you know, I talked about Kamala Harris's family being involved in leading the fight for Prop 22 in California, which would allow companies like Uber and Lyft to classify their actual employees as independent contractors and thereby deny them benefits like sick leave and prevent them from unionizing. Her uh, brother-in-law, Tony West, led the campaign. Her niece, Mina Harris, is the diversity officer of Uber. Huh. Her former campaign uh, chief in when she was running for Senate is on Uber's board. Then, But then there's also union people from SEIU, which is the service workers union. It's a big it's the, one of the most important, maybe the most important union in California, LaFonza Butler. She is uh, consulting for Uber now. Andy Stern, he was the head of SEIU. That guy is pushing education privatization to destroy teachers unions. All these sellouts just chase opportunities and there aren't any opportunities for people like us. Rania, remember when you were like run out of like respectable media? I mean, where yeah. were the opportunities then you were destroyed for like telling the truth on Syria and I mean where where else if you if you had not taken a job at in the now which is like the subject of like the FBI investigating and like Senate <laughs> intelligence if you had not done that I don't know how you would be in media and have a life I don't know but, how I would have I don't know how I would be able to like like pour a roof over my head and that's that's at the end of the day that's why this works because we live in a capitalist system where people need to make a salary. And when, when they have hundreds of thousands of dollars dangled in front of their face, like they're gonna jump at that and they're gonna like they're gonna change the, the way that they speak publicly. The, uh, but by the way, real quick about the Uber uh, thing, you were mentioning SEIU, the, the California NAACP also yep. got on board with the Uber, yep. um, which is and really this disgusting. And this is another reason why Trump increases his share of votes among black people and minorities is because the, the black liberal class has been completely bought off by corporate America. They're just delivering nothing. Um, 
and and so what what alternative are they presenting? I mean, look at what James Clyburn is. Thanks to James Clyburn, who's like a tool of the pharmaceutical industry in South Carolina, that Biden was the nominee at all because he just shepherded a bunch of people to the polls for Biden, and that was the end of Bernie. Um, so it's a very hopeless situation in the U.S., and I'm not here to offer any hope. I think like we need to provide an alternative instead mm -hmm. of looking for hope within pre-existing institutions. And I think one of the worst things about the Trump era is not that the institutions stood up and resisted him, it's that the institutions will outlast him because our institutions in this country, whether you know it's the fourth estate, the media, or the Senate or the Supreme Court, they exist, or, or, the, or the labor unions. You know, who just negotiate with management and don't do wildcat strikes. They exist to prevent democracy. They're not here to like shore up democracy. They are preventing the participatory democracy that was, you know, supposed to be what we were fighting for. So it's important to create alternatives and at least an alternative vision. That's why, you know, we've spent so much time in other places like Bolivia. Um, to get it to broaden our horizons and to make connections with people who um, have another vision who've actually succeeded in their own countries it also helps uh, you know when you connect with people in your own field who are journalists in those countries to just not feel insane um, because it's really hard for me to relate um, to a lot of other people in uh, what's what used to be known as progressive media in the United States. Well, I think there's very few people who still have any credibility and whoever they are, we're going to need to work together under a Biden administration. And I don't know what kind of litmus test I want to apply, but, um, you know, to the extent that there are. Well, I consider you one of the few credible gumshoe reporters and apparently your reporting was too good on Assange for the intercept to use. <laughs> well, yes. Um, uh, I, I do think though that there are some aspects of that organization that are terribly dysfunctional. Um, and also because they were forming a organization that was built around personalities and their followings. It was sort of like a, a rock super group I would equate it to. They ran into some terrible issues, um, and and so um, I'm not convinced that actually Glenn Greenwald uh, passed my message back to the editorial board so that I could get uh, an opportunity to do work for them. But at the same time, the most fundamental and important thing about what happened with the Intercept and Assange is that they did not invest in reporting at all on the extradition trial. So no matter the dysfunction, they did absolutely nothing to provide reporting on Assange. Um, and, and I think Glenn Greenwald can be held responsible to some degree, but almost entirely, I put the blame on Betsy Reed, editor-in-chief, for making the decision not to invest in coverage of Assange. Maybe, and maybe, I, she, maybe she didn't have the money. <laughs> no, she didn't want to give up her half million uh, uh, a year budget that she has for herself um, to, to pay anybody. Um, but but Ronnie, you should before we close as, as we close out here. I would buy a boat. I'd become a boater if I had that money. <laughs> I don't know, a man. I don't want to be on the. Boater for Bernie. 
Motors. You need to hire your own uh, global organization to to provide security for you. You'd have the money to do that. You could yeah. you could bring on your own. But Rania, you should just just because we raised it on the last week, if you don't mind, Max, I want to have Rania mention what you were saying about what happened with you and and uh, the intercept with your reporting. Because oh well, what I was saying was that you know I actually managed to write a few articles for the Intercept um, because of Glenn. Glenn like sort of pushed me on the editors and kept insisting and insisting. And so I did a little bit of reporting for them back in 2016 on both the elections on the Hillary Clinton campaign as well as I got to write one article uh, about Syria. There was this leaked UN report that came my way um, that was commissioned to investigate the impact of EUS and EU sanctions on Syria. And the report determined that they were some of the most harsh sanctions ever imposed uh, in history. Uh, and so I got you've that report so in my hand. What? So the US, the, you've been so discredited, like the US is just funneling money there and like things are going great and nobody's yeah. starving. <laughs> Nobody's starving. Um, so I, I wrote this. I wrote this article about this report. It was pretty straightforward. I even, you know, interviewed a few of the experts. So I, I quoted think tank experts, which is what you're supposed to do as a if you're a real acceptable journalist. You have to, you have to quote think tank experts. Um, that especially if you're intercept, I guess. So anyway, so I, I I did everything I was supposed to do, and then this article was just like attacked by the whole regime change machine that Max mentioned earlier. Uh, that came after him over the white helmet stuff and it, they had to issue like two or three really absurd unnecessary corrections there was nothing that needed to be corrected um it was it kind of reminded me of the way reporting on palestine used to get treated right like how people you know all these news organizations would issue like five corrections every time the israel lobby would get angry that they mentioned this many palestinians were killed so after that uh I never wrote for The Intercept again. I pitched them a lot of articles. I mean, it may also have had to do with the whole smear campaign against me for going to Syria. But regardless, like I had on the ground reports that, you know, were really good and, and, and all this stuff I could have reported for them. And they just repeatedly said, you know, I was repeatedly told no. But what I what I had noted when I tweeted about this was that every single time I got like a rejection from them, it was always, oh, Glenn passed along your proposal, but... So I was just noting, like, Glenn did try, I don't know how hard he tried, but he did try to do what he said he wanted to do at The Intercept, which is bring in, you know, freelance, uh, independent, adversarial journalists. And it seems like the people, you know, on top, the edit editors are the ones who wouldn't allow that to happen because that's who would reject what should have been the kind of report you would have seen there had it been the kind of outlet it said it wanted to be. But ultimately, I ended up writing a lot of those articles for The Gray Zone, which actually fills like I think the void of what the Intercept claimed it was going to be six years ago or seven years ago when it started. Yeah, which we knew, and we knew it wasn't going to be that. But I mean, I didn't Betsy say, "Oh, we're going to have a uh, roundtable of just Syrians discussing Syria," and that never even happened. Uh, it instead went to rejected one of your pitches. Oh yeah, she was like, she was like, "Oh, we already have uh, people working on the same stuff." You know, like thanks, but we already have someone working on something similar, and it that never happened. Never happened. So, and also, like to to like to be clear, intercept Syria coverage after of that after that was disgusting. It was all like a whitewash yeah. of well, death squads well, the U.S. was funding in Syria. It's worse than that. It, it was an astroturf campaign 
um, Merkaza, who is like their little in-house regime change stooge, uh, he did a profile of the White Helmets that was furnished to him by the Syria campaign, which was the billionaire-backed public relations arm of the White Helmets. He was basically participating in an influence operation. And he wrote the same article that appeared in Time magazine, which I later exposed because the White Helmets tried to recruit Roger Waters. And I got the emails they sent to him. And they were like, here's an article in Time magazine. And here's an article from The Intercept. And it was the Syria campaign trying to recruit him. So they were running an influence operation that ran through The Intercept um, with like this like talentless, mediocre character who is desperate for like approval and to be relevant, pushing it. And, you know, they were constantly using sources like the Syrian Network for Human Rights, which was run out of Qatar and just fabricate statistics. And then the worst thing that happened was that The Intercept began funding Bellingcat. Uh, they had Bellingcat come in and give these training sessions for like $2,500 a head. Nobody learns anything. I mean, have you seen anyone at The Intercept use Bellingcat techniques? No. And it's just a backdoor way of paying Bellingcat. Elliot Higgins boasted on Twitter that we get more from The Intercept than we get from the British government. And <laughs> that really uh, shows what a corrupt operation The Intercept is, what a completely irredeemable, corrupt operation, pro-war operation the, the Intercept is when you see Robert Mackey, Robert Hackey, actually citing Bellingcat in order to justify U.S. and British airstrikes on Syria for a chemical attack in Douma that, as we now know from four OPCW whistleblowers, never took place, which was obviously uh, a staged operation. But, you know, they're citing Bellingcat, they're paying Bellingcat, and now what is Bellingcat doing? What is Bellingcat doing? They're attacking whistleblowers from the OPCW. They are working with the OPCW, obviously, with fake documents, as we reported yeah. on Monte Report at the Gray Zone, just near whistleblowers. So here's what's happening. The Intercept is paying an organization that smears whistleblowers. Wasn't the Intercept <laughs> started to promote and defend whistleblowers? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the brand I understood as it was founded was that they were going to, you know, be really interested in leaking and uh, defending leakers and they were going to promote whistleblowers. It looks like Max is frozen here. Um, at least for me. Um, <laughs> He's making kind of like a Tucker Carlson face. Um, it, he if he had a boat. He's missing the bow tie, but it would it would be really good. I don't I don't know I don't if that's his, is that his connection. Um, it must be if me and you are still talking and seeing each other. You no, know, and I actually don't know if he'll be able to get back in. But yeah, uh, there okay, there he is. Your there face is. froze for a second, and then we lost you, but you're back. Um, but in any case, I think this conversation has probably run its course. Um, yeah, sorry. It's would just we, would uh, we like to uh, here? I'll just put we'll, up we'll the website. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have plenty of brunches during Biden's administration. Um, Starting tomorrow, I'm going to brunch every day for the next four years. Well, I'm just going to be flagging content left and right. Uh, you know, I'm going to start working for Twitter as just one of their detectives that can go flag um, anything anti-Biden, right? So that I can... Uh, I just assume all journalists are going to sell out and just become hall monitors for social media <laughs> while they are... Um, 
and Max is well, frozen. Well, that's not true. Oh, I wish Max was here to hear that. Okay, I actually don't think they'll all become hall monitors for Joe Biden. I think that another segment of journalists will um, also continue the Bernie grift. I think that Bernie, I mean, I was a Bernie supporter, but I think his campaign at this point has led to a sort of grift where there's people that literally just produce content about how Bernie would have won. And that's like literally their whole career now. <laughs> Which, I mean, at least it's not destructive. I actually don't think it's like, it's not like destructive, like selling war, but it's quite lucrative to just like, to like just continually write articles and produce videos that say Bernie would have won. I should start doing that. <laughs> Max's connection is like being throttled by yeah, some, by some secret spy agency or something. So um, if you can get in a plug, Max, is there anything you wanted to tell people about before we wrap up the show? Uh, follow my Twitter account while it's still there. Uh, all right. And uh, you got a few more days. Thegrayzone.com, uh, before the government seizes it, as they seized American Herald Tribune. The Department of Justice literally just seized an alternative website the other day. Just like, well, can't happen to me. It only happens to people like Alex Jones. So, yeah. Get all it right, while well, you can. Here. It's a dark episode. This is a dark episode. It's a dark ending where we're, our sites are about to be seized. Go yeah. go to shadowproof.com, go to grayzone.com because they'll be disappearing when Joe Biden is president. Yeah. Um, all right. So thank you everyone for watching the show. If I, if I, do, if I, do, this, if I do this, it's going to be called like a red brown alliance secret symbol. So <laughs> I'm going to like give you a thumbs up and I'm like, they're going to call it that. Let's all, let's, all, let's all do it. Let's all just like... If three like people will, will, Alexander Reed Ross will like write another yeah. article for the SPLC. He'll be like. <laughs> All right, everyone. So um, I'll just do a quick plug for our show while we have our thumbs up here to, to end. Uh, if you go to if you go to patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure and become a supporter of the show, uh, you can help us keep going seven years and hopefully we won't get seized by the Biden administration. <laughs> So, uh, although Patreon, pay, I hear Patreon's going to start deleting accounts if you Is this are... the all symbol? <laughs> yeah. All right. Everyone, all right, we'll be back bye. next week with another episode.